Father, I don't uh, trust in my preparation uh, in this moment. I certainly don't trust in my experience. I certainly don't trust in my, uh, even in my walk with you. But Lord, all I do trust is uh, that you have promised that your presence would accompany your word and would transform our lives. And so Lord, I pray that you would do this uh, tonight uh, on a rainy Memorial Day Sunday night. Uh, Lord, you would meet us even though we weren't expecting you uh, to be here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, well, if I look uh, a little different, um, I'm not Mormon, uh, though I have a white shirt and black pants on. Um, I did a wedding at four o'clock and uh, came here directly after. Never done that before. Uh, I was more than willing to do it because I love Anthony and Hayden, uh, but I do kind of hope I don't have to do that again. Um, I'm sweating bad. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're in Acts 13 tonight, and I think what we're going to see in Acts is that uh, you will see uh, a very polarizing response by, uh, or, or polar opposite responses by the two main characters in this text. And so, as I was thinking about uh, the theme of this text, I googled things that are polarizing, and one of the things that popped up uh, was a Reddit uh, article. I don't know if you guys are into Reddit. I, I think I've been there and I didn't know it a few times. Um, and Reddit bills itself as the front page of the internet. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it really just serves as just this massive collection of forums where people share news and comment and then other people comment on other people's posts. So if you really want to waste your life, go to Reddit. Um, and so this article came up about things that are polarizing, and man, there were some doozies on this list. Uh, here were some of them. Uh, things that are polarizing, uh, guns, uh, abortion, politics, religion, weed. Um, I didn't think that would be so polarizing. Um, Game of Thrones, uh, dogs and cats. Uh, my favorite responses were about dogs and cats because you really just had dog lovers defending why they why dogs are great and cats are terrible and cat lovers why cats are great and dogs are terrible. And uh, one dog lover wrote wrote this and I quote: When people tell me about their cats, I mentally go down a checklist for how to tell when someone is in an abusive relationship. They say things like, "I had to get stitches when Fluffy scratched me last week." It's my fault. I forgot to feed him right at six. Um, then the cat lover responded and said, and said this, just had a list of why they love cats. And they said, no mice, no cockroaches, eats less, doesn't need to be taken for walks, cleaner, basically a walking pillow. Uh, that's why they love cats. Um, I stumbled upon 10 uh, polarizing foods. Here were some of them. Uh, licorice, green peppers, blue cheese, celery, cilantro, and mayonnaise. I concur. If you like mayonnaise, we can't be friends. And I'm being dead serious uh, about that. So if you really think about uh, the day in which we live, it is a pretty polarizing time and not because of mayonnaise. Uh, we live in a time where we're tempted to believe that there's two options in everything and those options exist in the extremes and you pick one. Therefore, our world has very little nuance. In fact, I think it's just going to get worse because uh, the social media platforms are all governed by these algorithms that just reinforce our polarization. 
So because of these algorithms, we're much less likely to be exposed to ideas that we're unfamiliar with, that we disagree with, uh, or that we're going to have to think critically about. So what should we do? What should we do because of this polarizing nature of, in which the, day, the day in which we live? Well, some people put forward this option of what I, what I and many others would call pluralism. Pluralism simply says there are multiple ways to the truth. You have to determine it for yourself. So you don't have to judge other people based on their conclusions. The thought is that if you take this route, then you can be more tolerant, and therefore you'll be less hateful and less polarizing to people who disagree with you because you think they're right too. But there's a lot of problems with this strategy to reunite our culture. The first one is that there really are things that require us to choose between, choose between two competing. It's a child being abused and you turned a blind eye, then you should hate it and do something about it. There's no need for nuance there. Or on the positive, a positive end, you should celebrate when a lost child is found. Just a couple weeks ago, a three-year-old child out in Floyd County in eastern Kentucky was uh, found after being missing for three days in the woods. You should celebrate that. There's absolutely no need to nuance that out. But the same is true of the gospel. The gospel has this kind of polarizing effect. And many of us know it, and that's why we're bashful about saying anything about it. We stay silent because we're fully aware of how offensive the gospel will be. Or we try to take the sting out of the gospel to make it easier to receive. And our main lead character, Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, he's embraced the polarizing nature of the gospel. When he begins this first missionary journey that he's on when he goes to Cyprus. And it gives us a window for what to expect when we faithfully proclaim the gospel in our world. So let's read this passage together. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... This is Saul and Barnabas. They went out to Seleucia. Now, Seleucia, in case you were wondering, is 15 miles west of Antioch. They had left the church. Antioch, the church of Antioch had sent uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas to, uh, to be the first missionaries. Well, Antioch is really, really, really close to the Mediterranean Sea, but it's not quite there. It's 15 more miles west. And this is Seleucia, where they take out from. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is about 60 miles from Seleucia. Uh, Seleucia. And when they arrived at Salamis, okay, I'm still giving you some, some pointers here. Salamis is the town on the eastern edge of the island of Cyprus, okay? And they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, Paphos is on the very western end of the island. And when they get to Paphos, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
than the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. So let's recap what happens here. You've got Saul and Barnabas. They've taken off from Antioch. They've gone to this little island of Cyprus. They get to the eastern shore and they start preaching in the synagogues. And then they leave the eastern part of the island. They go to the western part of the island and they go to the capital city of Cyprus, which is Paphos. Well, Cyprus, this little island, is just like Antioch in Jerusalem. It's also under Roman rule. And the uh, the person who is leading on behalf, who's governing on behalf of the Caesar in Rome is called the proconsul here in Cyprus, and his name is Sergius Paulus. And when you are the lead government official of the Roman Empire for Cyprus, you are for sure going to have a little posse. You're going to have a squad. And around uh, one of the members of his squad was this magician, Elemus. And one of these two men received the gospel and one rejects it. Sergius Paulus, we learn in verse 12, receives the gospel and we see Elemis reject the gospel. So those are really my two points. Gospel reception and gospel rejection. We'll do reception first. So here you have Sergius Paulus. He's got this really high position. He's also said to be really smart in verse 7. Do you see that? And he's also said to be interested in the things that Barnabas and Saul are teaching. So what he does is that he summons Barnabas and Saul into his presence. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about ministry in your life. When we have our antenna up, we're looking for people who are interested. And contrary to what you may think and what I may think, truthfully, is that smart people actually can be interested in the gospel. I mean, it's really intimidating to engage them because we think they're always hostile, but they're not always hostile. It's intimidating because you, you think that you have to know all the right answers to all their questions. You feel insecure about explaining certain Christian beliefs. But don't let that stop you. Don't let that stop you from praying for these people. Don't let them stop you from loving these people. Just engage their questions. Just say, I don't know your answer to your question. I'm just going to tell you about my personal experience, and I'm just going to simplistically tell you the gospel. So Jesus really is after smart people. We pick that up all throughout Acts. He's also after people who are uneducated. Peter's very, very uneducated. He's just a fisherman. Meanwhile, you've got Paul or Saul, who's one of the brightest people who's ever lived. And the proconsul, no doubt, is in the camp with Saul, that he is one of these smart people. And what's unique about the proconsul, about Sergius Paulus, is that he's got this humility that he really wants to learn. And maybe when you're up there in, verses, in verse 7, when it's describing him as intelligent, maybe he's just intellectually curious. He just wants to know about this Jesus that they've been talking about, that he's fully God and fully man all at the same time. He's just curious about, this man rose from the dead? I'd like to know more. Maybe he's just curious about the fact that, oh, Jesus did miracles. His apostles have continued to do miracles. I'd really like for you, Saul, Barnabas, to tell me more. But his interest eventually leads to his conversion in verse 12. See it in verse 12? Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
So he was humbled into faith. And this is why the Christian faith can be so hard for smart people. It's humility. Uh, I recently read this, uh, this, this article from uh, a website called First Things. It's a great website. It's a religious website, and um, it had an article up written by this guy named Chris Arnade. Never heard of Chris Arnade before, and it's a really long article about really like his, his journey from being a person of non-faith to being curious in the things of the Christian faith. And he starts out and he talks about how he was on Wall Street for 18 years as a stockbroker. He had, had a, he had received a Ph.D. in particle physics from Johns Hopkins University. I guess because he was on Wall Street for 20 years, he made plenty of money and he could have retired, and he did. And he became a photographer full-time. And his passion in photography was taking pictures of poor people who had addictions. And after doing this tour of, uh, of taking photos of poor people with addictions across the United States, he publishes a photo book called Dignity. I really want to get it. I don't have it yet, but I really want to see it. And after he publishes this book called Dignity, he writes this piece in First Things, this first-person account of his own spiritual journey. And here's what he writes towards the end of the article. He says this, I could no longer ignore the value of faith not as a scientist, not as a person who claimed to want to learn things from others. Yet I still saw it simply as a utility, something popular because it worked for people. Still, after attending hundreds of different religious services, I was beginning to realize that there's more to it than that. My biases were limiting a deeper understanding that perhaps religion was right, or at least as right as anything could be. Here's the key quote. Getting there required a level of intellectual humility that I was not sure I had. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Intellectual humility was the obstacle for him, for his faith. See, Mr. Arnade had spent his whole life relying on his intellect to guide him through his life. And what he sees in the poor is the complete absence of intellectual pride. And he admires them so much for it. So you see, the Christian faith is not contrary to reason, but it does go beyond reason, which means that not everything can be fully explained, yet it is still true. Therefore, the Christian faith requires intellectual humility. We see Sergius Paulus here as an intelligent person obtain this intellectual humility, and therefore he was converted. So brother or sister, do you need to do the same? If you do, you will receive the gospel. So we see gospel reception in Sergius Paulus, and then we see gospel rejection in Elymas. See, right along this account in Acts 13, you've got, uh, you've got Sergius Paulus and you've got Elymas running right alongside him. And he's a Jewish magician. And his rejection of the gospel, it doesn't just affect him, though he has rejected it for himself. It also affects Sergius Paulus. He's trying to make sure he's extra hostile to the Christian faith because he wants to make sure that Sergius Paulus doesn't get converted. Think about how that threatens him. If Sergius Paulus gets converted, it's going to affect this guy's life, big time. Maybe the silver spoon's going to be removed. 
Maybe he's going to be unable to kind of straddle the line of being a wizard on one hand and Jewish on the other, that he's not going to be able to do this anymore if his boss is converted to Christianity. So the gospel is a huge threat to him, and that's why he's hostile. But his hostility doesn't go unchecked by Paul. Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he responds with force. And when, he, when Saul responds, he describes his condition in verse 10 and gives him his consequence in verse 11. Look at, look at verse 10. Look how he describes his condition. It's son of the devil. He's never met this guy. <laughs> of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, the Lord. Not a glowing introduction, is it? And I'm really doubtful that this is how Elemis would self-identify I bet he really thinks the exact opposite. I bet he thinks he's a son of the divine, not a son of the devil. I bet you he thinks he's a proponent of righteousness, not an, not an enemy of it. I bet you he thinks he's full of goodness and truth, not deceit and villainy. I bet you he thinks he's someone who makes straight paths, not crooked ones. But see, this is the work of Satan. He deceives us. And when he deceives us, we begin to oppose the work of the Lord. And that's why Paul starts his prognosis off with calling him a son of the devil. But Paul doesn't just leave him with a prognosis. He moves on in verse 11 and delivers the consequences for being the kind of person with this fourfold description. So in verse 11, you look at it there. It says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see, unable to see the sun for a time. What does verse 11 sound like to you? We've seen this before in Acts. You know where we saw it, don't you? Four chapters before. Acts chapter 9. In fact, the person who pronounces this curse upon Elymas is the one who was blinded. Remember, Saul's on the road of Damascus and he is blinded by the Lord when he's confronted about the darkness in his own soul. And we don't know this for sure, this, but from the days that Saul was blinded until his sight was restored, I bet that he came to the same conclusions that he uses to describe Elmas. I bet you he realizes that he was full of deceit and villainy. I bet you that he begins to see that he was a son of the devil. He begins to see that he's an enemy of all righteousness. He begins to see that he made crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And as he pronounces this curse upon Elymas, he's got hope for him. He knows that things can change for Elymas because they sure did change for him. His blindness didn't last very long. And if Elmas is willing to see that Saul's prognosis is correct, and if Elmas is willing to see that Jesus is his only hope, perhaps his blindness will have then led him to his salvation. Now, you don't have to become blind for God to get your attention, do you? Oftentimes, we just need to feel the sting of our poor decisions. And maybe you're experiencing that sting today. Maybe you've lost privileges that used to be yours. 
Maybe you've been bypassed with opportunities because of poor decisions that you've made in the past. How do you interpret those things when they're happening to you? Now, I realize that not all pain in our life is a result of our poor decisions, but I do think that God can take any type of pain and use it as his loving discipline in your life. We need this category. It's necessary for us to have this category when we're processing our pain. So do you see the pain in your life as God's frown upon you? Or do you see it as the discipline of a loving father? See, here's why this is important. The pain that comes from our poor decisions is proof of God's love for us. It's not proof of his contempt. Listen to Hebrews 12. If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Let me take it a step further. If you're a child of God, it is impossible to experience God's condemnation. Let me say it again. If you're a child of God, it is impossible to experience his condemnation. Now, you, you can and will experience his confrontation. You can and will experience his discipline. But that's very different than his condemnation. See, Romans 8.1 says, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is that? How can you have no condemnation in Jesus? Well, the answer is real simple. Jesus. See, the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus loved us when we hated him. Our hate for him, it deserved the wrath of God, and Jesus took that wrath on himself as the beloved. He was the one who had never known anything but his father's pleasure. And now he knew nothing but the father's condemnation, his ire, and his frown. Why would Jesus do that? Well, brothers and sisters, because Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sons of the devil. Jesus loved those filled with villainy and deceit. Jesus loves enemies of righteousness. Jesus loves those who make crooked his straight paths. He lived and died and raised again because he loved you. Now maybe you came today and you were interested in Christianity. Just like Sergius Paulus. You were intrigued maybe by someone else in this room invited you here. You were intrigued because you've seen this friend. They've been, been abundantly compassionate with you. They've been bold with you. And they, you finally said yes after they've asked you to church 38 times in a row. Maybe you came tonight because you were just intrigued by the story of a man who raised again from the dead. Well, friends, Jesus' invitation to those who are intrigued, Jesus' invitation to those who are spiritually interested is to choose your faith. You can either experience his judgment by never moving from interest to faith, or you can experience his love 
by believing that Jesus took the punishment that you were due. The decision's yours. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all, all of those who are intrigued tonight, Lord, that they would uh, move to faith. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are suffering, <laughs> uh, suffering because of our poor decisions, uh, Lord, that we would see uh, that our blindness doesn't have to last forever. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. In Christ's name, amen.